0: content-based instruction or CBI or content-based language teaching, this idea of integrating language and content. And back in those days, we didn't have a lot of ideas about the methodology for doing this. And it was, it was fabulously exciting to be doing that and also very, very uh, successful. The students um, were initially a little bit puzzled, like, why are we taking two psychology courses? And we kept saying to them, no, our, our course is not a psychology course. Our course is a language through psychology course. There's a wonderful chapter that David Noonan wrote. It's called Content, Tasks, and project. We, we started talking about the similarities. You know, it's really, it's where is the point of departure? Is the point of departure the content? Or is the point of departure the task? Other than that, we're really talking about very
2: complementary approaches. The context doesn't really matter. Every teacher says, oh, but you don't understand the context of, of language teaching here and this and that. My question to you is, what is the biggest impediment to successful or effective language teaching
0: That's why I'm a methodologist and it's because, you know, an untrained teacher really doesn't have any idea what they're doing in the classroom and I can speak from personal experience. I was not a well-trained English language teacher and I knew nothing about teaching German to native speakers and I failed miserably at it. If you already are trained and you're already experienced and you can go to a new setting and the likelihood of your succeeding is far, far greater. Hey everyone, this is
1: Andrew and thanks for listening to Teacher Talking Time. And if you're new to our work here at Learn Your English, I need to tell you about our 5 in 30 community. Pretty simply, 5 in 30 helps you get your first 5 teaching clients in 30 days, even if you have zero entrepreneurial experience. We surveyed all of you recently about the biggest challenges you have in starting and developing your own teaching businesses, and the vast majority of you said that it was finding and enrolling clients, so we wanted to help. And five and thirty might be a good fit for you if you've been thinking about starting your own teaching business for a while and just have been putting it off. Or maybe you've already started your business, but you don't have a clear niche. Or number three, you know, you maybe you have a clear niche and you want to add a new offer to your existing business. And if you followed our work for any time, you know that we like simple. And five and thirty is very simple. Through the process, we help you, number one, identify the problem you solve. That's our take on niching down. Number two, create a solution to that problem. That's our process for helping you create your own course. And number three, enroll five or more students for that pilot course in just 30 days. And you'll get those five students without making a single post on social media. Does that sound like you? Are you a teacher who wants to gain momentum and consistency in your business, understand your niche, and gain five new clients in the next 30 days without making a single post on social media? If so, head over to our website and get started. You can go to learnyourenglish.net slash 5in30 and get started right there. That's learnyourenglish.net slash 5in30. The link is also below in the show notes. We hope to see you on the inside if you feel this is a good fit for you. And now let's get back to the show. In this episode of Teacher Talking Time, we're privileged to sit down with Donna Brinton, a distinguished figure in the field of applied linguistics and TESOL. Donna's academic journey is as rich as it is inspiring. With dual BA degrees from UC Berkeley and MA degrees from Purdue University and UCLA, she's been a prominent figure in second language education, starting her career actually in Germany and later contributing significantly at institutions like UCLA, Soka University of America, and USC. A really key aspect of Donna's work is her advocacy for content-based instruction, or CBI, the main focus of this interview. This innovative approach uses new language as the medium of instruction, integrating language and content teaching. This method leverages the interconnectedness of language form and function, offering a more holistic learning experience. Shana's role in our field extends beyond her academic and teaching contributions. She's part of the first generation of female applied linguists who, in the 70s, began to significantly shift the gender dynamics in our field. Her generation marked a pivotal moment, paving the way for greater female representation and leadership in applied linguistics. She also has extensive authorship, including influential texts like Teaching Pronunciation, The Content-Based Classroom, and Heritage Language Education. These works, along with her global teaching and consulting experience, have made her a very, very respected voice in language education worldwide. We loved speaking with Donna. We know you're going to learn a lot from this conversation. And with that said, let's get into it.
2: funny interesting story to share because one of the first books i read about teaching english was uh what in brazil they call the apple book yeah the apple book and of course i didn't know everyone
0: calls it the apple book
2: the apple book okay so Mm -hmm. i remember coming across that book in early in the early i don't remember maybe two When was the first edition of that book published? Do you remember? I'm not
0: sure because I only came on in the fourth edition. I I wrote chapters in the third edition, but then I was one of the co-editors in the fourth edition. And I'm not entirely sure (laughs) when that first edition came out.
2: We're not going to talk dates then, but it was (laughs) at the beginning beginning of my teaching career. I've been teaching for about 23 years now. So in the beginning Mm -hmm. of my teaching career, that book, was um, part of our teaching uh, library in the staff room there. And I remember picking up a copy of that and jumping right into the pronunciation part and reading that pronunciation section and thinking, wow, this has actually really opened up my mind about teaching pronunciation. Years go by, I come across Teaching in Pronunciation, another book that was also um, seminal for those who are interested in teaching pronunciation. And then, of course, I was talking to Mike the other day and we we're like thinking about guests for the podcast. And Mike said, Leo, why don't we do something on content-based learning? And I was like, Mike, I'll be very honest with you. My understanding of CBL is very, very limited. And he's like, well, that's why we do the podcast. We invite people who are experts and we can approach this from a beginner's mind. And then Mike suggested, why don't we interview Donna Britton? I was like, I don't know who Donna Britton is.
0: Oh, no, you're going to get a chance.
2: (laughs) But that's what I was going to say is that eventually when I looked you up and I started learning more about you. I was like, of course I know who she is. The Apple book.
0: So, Well, I'm, I'm the middleman in a lot of those books. I'm sort of the person who, who glues it all together. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Marianne's name is first on both of those books for, for a good right. reason. And, and actually, I'm really happy to say that right now, that's w- what I'm majorly involved in is we're putting out a fifth edition of the Apple book
2: a fifth edition coming out when do you know
0: well uh, in about two years we're just starting we're still identifying contributors and we're Mm -hmm. still putting together that table of contents but uh, we've been trying for years now to convince um the publisher that they needed a fifth edition because the last edition was 2014 and it's it's really in need of revision but they Mm -hmm. kept saying we're not we're not going to do that we're not interested and then out of the blue we got an email saying congratulations you're doing a
2: fifth edition. Nice. So, well, breaking
3: yeah. news. That is fantastic. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, before we before we jump into the book, before we talk about teaching pronunciation, content-based instruction, we have a lot of a lot of topics to discuss here with you. I know that you started or that you were trained in in your teaching career as an audio audio-lingual teacher of German.
0: I was, yeah. Yeah.
2: So that what dates I was hoping quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was hoping you could. Perhaps walk us through is maybe share with us your your journey into the field of language education, how you got into applied linguistics, and more importantly, and I think this is a question that I, i'm I'm usually very curious to hear from from other professionals is what inspired you to pursue this career
0: okay so um as an undergraduate, and this is back, I won't even give the date because uh, that makes me look really old um As an undergraduate, I studied German and also comparative literature. I did a dual major as an undergrad. And um, as a child, actually, my father had a sabbatical year. He was a professor of chemistry in Germany. So um, I was put into German schools and I learned German by sort of not even immersion, maybe more submersion. Um, So that was what I did best. And that's what I thought I would do as an undergrad. Back in those days, we weren't too goal oriented. Um, And I was at UC Berkeley, so we were particularly not very goal-oriented. So anyway, I decided to do a master's in German, and I got an offer from Purdue University for $3,000, which was a huge amount in those times, you know. So I thought, okay, great, I'll do my master's degree. And when I finished the degree, um, the foreign language requirement pretty much across the country was dropped, which meant that there wasn't much need for audiolingually trained German instructors. Um, But I heard a rumor that the German government was um, looking for native speakers of English to come and teach in their school system. And so I wrote a letter to the Ministry of Culture, and I got a letter back that said, congratulations, turn up at such and such a date, such and such a place, and uh, we'll introduce you to your new school, and you'll start, you know, teaching in September. So I got a charter flight uh, to Germany and took a train all the way up to North Germany, where I was... Supposed to be working, and uh, they put me into the school system. But because my degree was in German and not English, they told me that I needed to teach German rather than English. So I faced this pretty awful situation where the parents of the children were up in arms that a non native speaker was teaching their children German. And halfway through the year, I said uh, to the school director, "I can't do this. This is, you know, I I wasn't trained to teach German to native speakers," um, and they said, "Well, you could become like a resource teacher and teach English." I said, "I'd be happy to do that." So they switched me over, and kind of like a jet teacher or an epic teacher, I was the native speaker English-speaking resource teacher, and I determined that you know I really wasn't. Cut out to teach children in grades like four through 13. Um, and I decided I'd go back to the US. I had no idea what I was going to do. And then I met someone who said, Well, we're looking for an English um, direct, a director of our English courses at our small business college um, not far from here. And I'd be happy to take you down there and introduce you. So they took me down and introduced me. And I was offered the job of director of English courses at this small business college where actually I directed one person, namely myself. I was the only English teacher. Um, But the salary was very tempting and exciting, uh, about twice what I'd been making in the school. And I became an English teacher. And at the time I was teaching what really, I know today is ESP. But in those days, I really didn't even know much about English for special purposes or specific purposes. Mm -hmm. So I was teaching business English and English for management purposes. And I stayed there for about another four and a half years or so, um, at which point the school directors absconded with the money, and the school got closed down. And um, I qualified for German unemployment for a full year <laughs> wow. because I'd been paying into it since I first entered Germany and so I had a nice year of travel and I went to all sorts of places but a friend of mine who um I'd met uh said well you know you probably since you're teaching English you should probably go back and do a degree in teaching English as a second or foreign language mm-hmm. And um, I thought, well, that, that sounds reasonable. So I, I had to leave Germany because my residence permit was coming due. And I applied to UCLA to be a graduate student and did a second degree in teaching English as a second or foreign language, taking courses from Marianne Selsmercia, who, of mm. course, became then my, my co-author, co-editor um, on the books that I've been working on. So that's a long, long story, wow. long answer to your
2: to your question
0: it's uh, that's what I've been doing ever since really
2: uh, it's It's interesting how pretty much everyone who eventually becomes a professional like as a, as a as an English teacher or teaching English as a foreign and additional, whatever language you want to describe it. It's very interesting how most of us, if not the majority of us did not know what we were doing in the first place we fell into it exactly Uh, maybe that's
0: sort of generational too you know i mean as i said my generation was not particularly goal-oriented we had no idea what we were going to be when we grew up we just sort of figured that it would happen and luckily for most of us it did happen
2: (laughs) yeah even for us i think the three of us i think we kind of like stumbled upon it oh yeah very much the deep end
3: yeah
1: i didn't i mean i very much in the deep end and i did the you know i taught abroad and i remember vividly when i came back to canada here which is home wondering same question donna like what am i gonna do because it never occurred to me so silly that i could just continue to do foreign language teaching here uh but obviously you can and i just had no i was just so naive and had no idea and then you i mean i just kind of fell into it as well like like many of us do it is curious how that happens.
2: one of the things you've Men um, working with uh, Marianne Murcia and you also mentioned uh, Russell Campbell, and yeah, mm-hmm. I think the two of them. Correct me if I'm mistaken here, but the two of them seem to have been some sort of uh, role models or, or significant influences in your in your career. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how how their teaching, how their mentorship, has shaped your own approach to to how to language education. I would say. Um,
0: Well, both of them, uh, you're you're quite right. Both of them were major mentors to me. Um, Marianne, maybe more from the instructional point of view, I took a lot of courses with her when I was going through my degree program. Um, But Marianne was one of those people who really believed that her students were her, her co-equals or equals. Um, The first and second and even the third edition of the Apple book contained chapters almost exclusively by her students. And so, you know, I think the message that she gave us and the thing that gave me the kind of confidence that maybe I needed as a newcomer to the field was that, you know, you you are experts in the field already and you can write a chapter that's going to influence people. So Marianne's, you know, main mission in life, I think has always been to translate research into practice, into terms that new novices to the field, um, you know, could understand. And that's Mm -hmm. been very much, I've modeled myself along those same lines. Um, I never actually took a course from Russ. Um, Russ ran a, unit on campus at UCLA called the Language Resource Center, later the Language Resource Program, and he did a lot of external programs. And as I became more experienced and, you know, got hired on as a lecturer at the university, he reached out to me and said, I'd be interested in having you do some of these programs with us. So I ended up doing programs with him that were international programs. Mm -hmm. We did a program with the Vietnamese very, very early on um, called Business Alliance for Vietnamese Educators, BAVE. I did another program in Western China where we brought undergraduate students from UCLA's Department of Political Science um, to Western China to do English summer camps. And I did some pre-training of these undergraduate students because they weren't educated in TESOL methodology at all. And then Russ said, why don't you go with them? And that way you can kind of um, observe them and give them, coach them along the way. And so that was one of the most interesting experiences that I ever did abroad with Russ's programs. Um, wow. So I think that um, that that shaped me to, to a large degree, to realize that, you know, there was a, a really wide world out there of people needing needing to learn more about how to teach English effectively. And Russ's message was always, you know, we, we can go there, we can do this, we can help out. He had so many programs going on. Um, I, didn't, I wasn't involved in all of them, but those were two of the major ones that, that I participated in.
2: It's, um, it's important that you mention that it's really crucial for any language teacher to understand how not to just teach the language, but also how languages are actually learned. And this is where the, the research comes into play. Do you find, and this is a, an honest question because I don't really have an answer for it, do you find that we have somewhat moved away from talking more about methodology, teaching, and we have moved towards more other, I would say, social issues? We haven't really, I feel like this is just a perception, and again, I want to hear your take on this, but I find that when I attend conferences, when I participate in certain webinars, I feel like methodology has taken a bit of a backseat now and people are focusing more on social issues. Do you see that in the same way or do you think that methodology, because I I remember watching one of your talks and you talk a lot about the pendulum in in methodology and language teaching. Has the pendulum swung a bit too far onto the social causes and things like that, as opposed to our craft, which is being better teachers and understanding how people learn languages.
0: Well, I'm not sure that that it isn't important to include that in methodology. And, and a lot of this is pandemic influenced. I mean, at mm-hmm. the um, the International TESOL Conference in Portland, for example, social emotional learning was in all Ha- at least half of the presentations, or so it seemed to me, um, and um, with in in with respect to the Apple book, we've been asked to include a chapter there, so there'll be a new chapter on social emotional learning, and there'll be another chapter that's also, you know, quite I think um, forward thinking about working with neurodiverse learners or what used to be called learners with special needs. Um, so i think that that needs to be brought under that umbrella of methodology but i think methodology has always kind of taken a back seat to issues like second language acquisition and social issues and so you know maybe with the uh, the fifth edition of the apple book we can swing that pendulum a little bit back in the other direction i'm hoping so certainly yeah
2: and you are very famous very known for your work in content-based instruction is Mike was the one who actually brought this up to me and I know that you, you've written a book um, and I'm going to say the name of the book correctly here content-based instruction what every ESL teacher needs to know so I'm going to use the subtitle of that book to ask you what is content-based what every, instruction what, what does, does every, every ESL teacher well need the, to know? that
0: that book is actually a shortened version it's the e-book version of uh, the second edition of um, the content-based classroom mm-hmm. that Ann Snow and I did. And um it was a brilliant idea of our editor, Kelly Sipple, at the time to bring out this series of what every ESL teacher needs to know about, you know, a number of topics. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Do you want me to give a definition or do you want yeah, me to launch will... into the background of it? I mean, I'm yeah, happy to do
2: I think it's it would be interesting because a lot of teachers don't. See, when I was um, I when I posted about this on social media, a lot of teachers don't seem to know what content-based instruction, instruction is. is. They don't understand yeah. their its significance in language learning. I think it would be mm-hmm. really nice if you could take us back to when it started, I'd what it is, and its significance yeah. in language learning. Okay.
0: Yeah. Okay. So Content-Based Instruction, or CBI, or Content-Based Language Teaching, CBLT, we can use a variety of acronyms there. Um, Today it's probably um, more appropriate to talk about integrated content and language teaching because that's the sort of broader movement. It's nothing really new. It began in the early 1980s. And in the early 1980s, the major movement in content-based instruction was happening in four main places, one being Los Angeles, which is why I probably got involved in this at UCLA and also at USC, Um, in Monterey at the then Monterey Institute of Language Studies, now Middlebury Institute, um, in Ottawa, Canada,
2: Oh, and Ottawa.
0: in Vancouver um, and the reason that this was happening uh, was really not probably it just it just happened <laughs> sort of simultaneously um, there was there was some, coordination that happened but mainly because people would say you know what you're doing at ucla is similar to what's happening at the university of ottawa and you should talk with mari vesha because she's you know really interested in writing a book about this idea of integrating language and content Um, and so that's that's actually what led us to write our first book on content-based instruction which was content-based second language instruction Um, But the very first book that came out about content-based instruction was uh, Bernie Mohan's Language and Content. And that's why things were happening at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Um, We talked a lot with our colleagues from Monterey, because of course, Los Angeles and Monterey are not that far from each other. And we had people who were getting their PhDs at UCLA, and then being hired on to the faculty of Monterey. So there was a lot of back and forth between Monterey and um, UCLA. Um, And so that, that sort of is the, the birth of content-based instruction. I got involved in it um, around 1981. So really, very, very early on at UCLA, there was a program that was directed by Mike Rose from the uh, School of Education and UCLA Writing Programs, and his idea was that we should take students who were admitted to the university but had been already identified by the university based on entry scores and other things um, as high-risk students, and we should invite them to come like six weeks early to UCLA and take two courses, a language course and a content course that were in some way interconnected. And back in those days, we didn't have a lot of ideas about the methodology for doing this. We were really just playing around with the idea and seeing what could be done. And I was paired with another instructor, Marguerite Ann Snow, who of course has been my co-author, co-editor on everything, and is currently my co-editor on the app, the new version of the Apple book. Um, and we just started coordinating efforts. And, you know, we were paired with the professor of psychology. And so we, we had weekly meetings. This was something that Mike Rose had arranged with the professor and with all of the TAs for this large lecture course that our students were part of. Um, And we started, you know, just working with, we threw away our language textbook and we started creating all our own instructional materials. And that first edition of the the book that we wrote with Mari Vesha um, has about close to a hundred pages of the early efforts that we made in teaching language through the content of psychology Um, and it was it was fabulously um, exciting to be doing that and also very very uh, successful the students um, were initially a little bit puzzled like why are we taking two psychology courses and we kept saying to them no our, our course is not a psychology course our course is a language through psychology course you're learning you know, issues in language through psychology. We were asked to attend the psychology professor's lectures, which we did fairly regularly, and also, of course, read the textbook chapters. So all of the materials that we were developing were coming either out of the lectures or directly related to the reading that they were doing. And we were doing also a lot of teaching of study skill strategies because these high-risk students came in without much... Uh, background in how to really cope with the university. They were lacking a lot of academic English skills, but super bright students, obviously, that's why they'd been admitted to the university. So that that was sort of what got us started. And then we were told, well, this woman, Mari Vesha, at the University of Ottawa, which is a bilingual university, um, is doing something similar also with psychology courses. So they are also teaching a psychology course connected with an English course. And you, so we we were introduced actually to Mari by Marianne Selsmercia at oh. a TESOL conference in New York City. And Mari said, Well, I've got a sabbatical coming up and I'm looking for a place to go on my sabbatical. And we said, Well, come to UCLA and we can start writing a book about this. So that's oh. how we got into writing the the very first edition of the content-based second language instruction book.
2: I like Um, what you said here. I'm going to interrupt you for a second, um, Donna, but you said something, learning a language through psychology. mm. Can you, I think a lot of teachers are probably going to be asking questions about this. What do you mean exactly by that? Okay. How can a person learn a language through psychology? psychology?
0: Yeah. Um, so I'll just give you some concrete examples of how yeah, we sure. how we started to do this. So as I said, we had weekly meetings with the psychology professor, and there were several other content groups, modules where other language teachers were teaching political science with a political science professor, um, or human geography was another one of the courses. These were all what we call GE courses, general ed courses Mm -hmm. that fulfill a requirement for undergraduate students. So they were selected for that reason. And they were introductory courses to the discipline. And the students had a choice of which one of these courses they could enroll in. Um, So we would, you know, look at the syllabus of the psychology professor and we would say, okay, it looks like week one, what you're doing is what is psychology And what are the various branches of psychology? How does this relate to language teaching? Well, Uh, we're looking at how to write a definition. And so, you know, what is psychology? Psychology is the study of short sentence definition or paragraph length definition. And this is exactly what we, we would ask the psychology professor what what is the quiz at the end of the week going to contain so that we can prepare our students linguistically for doing this because of course our students were all from other language backgrounds and not only you know high risk in terms of their academic right. skills but also because they were second language students coming into the university um at the end of Week one, the students were in our class were getting a little bit less confused about why they were taking these quote unquote two psychology classes. Right. And Monday I remember coming in the first time we did this to the next Monday, and the students said, Donna, Donna, you know what? Remember all of those 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 things that we were doing about what is psychology? That was the question on our psychology quiz and they were all excited you know because they felt that they'd done well and of course you know what we were doing was teaching them issues like we were focusing on the definite article in a definition so that's how we started to do this and mm. um you know we would just sort of brainstorm, Ann Snow and I, what are we going to do tomorrow in tomorrow's class? Well, today, the lecture that we attended was all about, you know, Freud and Freud's uh, theories. Let's see what we could do about classification. Right. And how so we
2: could it's do building, building the curriculum, the
0: goal. Yeah.
2: Well, wow. we're kind late in the end
0: days. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
2: Did you have a chance to repeat that course?
0: we did it eight different summers in a row. So yes, oh, wow. unfortunately each time with a different psychology professor. So, uh, <laughs> that would have been easier if it had been the same one and the same t- psychology textbook, but I think we probably had also eight different, um, psychology textbooks, but we, the basic ideas were was... there and we could, okay. yeah, yeah. So,
2: so that was and the that really, then.
0: yeah. And As we progressed in the years, you know, we started to also work on this book with Mari Vesha. And then we also started to make a couple of professional presentations about this at TESOL conferences. And we were able to do a study at the end of this period where we looked at... um, the success rate of these, I think it was 254 students that had gone through this freshman summer program to see if they had actually continued in their academic career and how Mm -hmm. successful they'd been. And of course, we can't say this was all due to the freshman summer program, but, um, you know, we did interview a lot of the students and they were, you know, really very much attributing this success to the fact that they had had this initial shot in the arm, you know, to sort of help them get into what the university expectations were.
2: Right. So basically, I have a a working definition of content-based learning here, which is learning a language through a subject.
0: I can give you a formal definition if you want. Here's a formal definition from um, from the Apple book, the uh, fourth edition, and from the article that Anne Snow wrote. And here's what she says. She says, CBI is an umbrella term for a multifaceted approach to second foreign language teaching that differs in terms of factors such as educational setting, program objectives, and target population, but shares a common point of departure, the integration of language teaching with content instruction. And I kind of underline there this idea of multifaceted, Mm -hmm. that there are so many different ways of doing content-based instruction, um, and it does depend on the students, it depends on their proficiency level, it depends on the setting, it depends on their L1 um you know there are all sorts of ways that we can do this effectively and there are different types of content based instruction but um it's it's really a big umbrella term if you want to think of it that way
2: is that is that how you cuz i remember watching one of your talks and you discussed cbi um i think you call them prototypes
0: yeah we that's that's what we identified in the first book we identified three prototypes um, that existed back in the early 1980s, because that's right. what we were writing about. And that's pretty much all that existed at the time. Um, and those were theme-based, sheltered, and adjunct. Mm. And I can go into that a little bit if you yeah, can talk think that's about appropriate. That, yeah. So, you know, theme-based is the broadest and probably best-known version of content-based instruction. It's what you see in every... ESL, EFL textbook, when you open the table of contents and it says chapter one, women in the workplace, chapter two, global warming, chapter three, you know, whatever. Um, So the idea is that you take a theme of supposedly high interest to the learners um, and you work with that thematic content and you find readings and you find listening segments and you work with grammar within that, you know, sort of thematic context. So that's that's essentially what we mean by, by theme-based instruction. And right. it's also maybe the most flexible of the three because it can be done at virtually any proficiency level and right. with any, you know, any language background. Um, the sheltered approach um, is something that is that's that very important in the school context that we have in North America, um, where you a School District, and you realize that there are 35 uh, home languages in the students in that particular, you know, school district or in Los Angeles, it's often, I think I heard that there are 97 different languages, but I suspect that there are Seriously. actually more than wow. that. Um, in the Los Angeles Unified School District, so a teacher walks into the class that they're teaching basic science in, and half the students, or three quarters of the students, or in some places even, basically the the majority of students in that class don't come from a language background that is right. English, and yet the instruction is being carried out in English. So the idea is that you need, as a content instructor, um, you need training in order to work with these students effectively and you need to find means of um, you know making your lessons more interactive there's a whole huge literature on sheltered instruction and how to do this effectively Um, so that's that's really what the sheltered model is and then the third model adjunct instruction is what we were doing in the freshman summer program. You have two instructors, one is a language instructor, one is a content instructor. The language instructor's job is to use that content as the point of departure for teaching language issues. The content teacher basically just does what they would do normally in any class that they taught. Um, but that you're using their materials, their lectures, their readings in order to teach language issues and draw attention to language issues. Right. So those were the three so-called prototype Prototypes. models that we identified.
2: Interesting, okay. And so then I, in I wasn't our... familiar with, with the shelter or the adjunct, but mm-hmm. uh, the theme is probably the most popular because, as you said, most ESL textbooks, CFL textbooks use that theme. Yeah, um, yeah. A themed approach.
1: Did you say, Donna, you used the adjunct with the study that you mentioned with those participants? Yeah, okay. Interesting, curious as well, because you mentioned that the participants afterwards mentioned how confident they were in the program, that you know, how, how prepared they were.
0: Yeah, I have a strong bias <laughs> for the or for the adjunct model because I think of the three, it's but it's probably going to come through. So I'll be honest about it. Um, but it's also it's also the most expensive of the models because if you think about this, you know you have to have two instructors rather than one. Um, we were actually paid additional money uh, because of all of the extra work that we were doing because we were not only teaching but we were also doing all of the materials development for that course uh-huh. on the fly. We were attending the Professors' content lectures. We were reading the content textbook. We were attending, you know, meetings. Mm. Um, it was a very involved model. But I think that's why the students, you know, the students. There was also tutoring that was involved. So oh, wow. we had our own tutors um, for the language course. There were tutors for the psychology course. These, it was a residential program, so the students were staying in the dorms at UCLA. Um, so they had dorm tutors who were helping them. So it was really, uh, you know, very successful because of all of these things that were put into place, these, you know,
1: that's really interesting. Yeah. That's that sounds like a really good way to go about it in a situation where, you know, resources aren't like that. Or could could a teacher put on the different hats themselves in in their own setting, for example?
0: Yeah. Good question, Andrew. Actually, for um, the first edition of the content-based classroom book, we had a chapter in there by a teacher who did exactly that, oh, um, really? and at, at a California community college because he was so impressed with what was going on. You know, so yeah, that can happen, um, and I think that's maybe uh, one of the one of the models that's sort of grown out of those prototype models, Um, as I was sort of starting to say, um, in the content-based classroom second edition, um, one of the things that we attempted to do was uh, make a new map of content-based instruction that was not just three pieces, like the sheltered and theme-based and adjunct, but that looked at all of the different possible variants of content based instruction that had been developing over the years this was published in 2017 so that's you know what we attempted to do and so we we talk about all sorts of twists and turns that you can do to the model to make it more effective and we wanted to Um, internationalize that Mm -hmm. second edition of the content-based classroom and bring in people from contexts that were very different than we'd been able to talk about in the first edition. Um, And so we had some really exciting chapters, like there was one from um, South Africa where she was talking about how she had Um, attempted to do a modification of the adjunct because the university didn't have the resources to do a true adjunct, but she was using the tutors in the place of a language instructor. Um, And there were all sorts of other, you know, sort of nice case studies that we were able to put together in that volume.
1: Let's take a quick break. We'll be
2: right back. And if you are also new to our Learn Your English community, I have to tell you more about our Teacher Accelerator program, which is our online program for teachers all around the world who want to eliminate lesson planning, reach and help more students, teach less, earn more money without, of course, sacrificing work-life balance. Our programs help teachers reflect and develop in the most important skills they need to succeed in the information age. And it's just like your teaching isn't for everyone, our program isn't for everyone, it's for someone. The program has four pillars of successful design we have a community, we have live sessions, we have self paced learning, and more importantly, we have lots, lots of feedback. Does this sound like you? Are you a teacher who wants to? Implement dogmy and task-based learning in your teaching? Do you want to eliminate lesson planning? Do you want to help more students, but also work less? Do you want to transition from selling your time, teaching one-to-one, to actually focusing on outcomes and selling results? Do you want to be a business owner and not an employee? And more importantly, do you want to build and scale your teaching business? If this sounds like you, then you have a great opportunity here. Just head over to our website, learnyourenglish.net slash schedule and book a meeting with us. We would love to have a conversation about your current situation and whether we can help you with any of these things. Hi, everybody. My name is Kimberly and I'm from Malawi. This is teacher talking time to learn your English podcast. There's a lot to, un- There's a lot to unpack in. there well, yeah. Yeah. go ahead
3: mike no no i and i think um certainly for a lot of our listeners donna um a, a question that kind of comes to mind is like you know i i'd love to use this approach many of our teachers that that uh listen to our podcasts are are perhaps teaching business english business or they're teaching english for management or for spouse and so on and I'm, I'm sure they're they're always wondering like you know um, at what like what what would be a good way to approach the content side of things? Like you mentioned that you had to do your own research and you you got access to to some scholars and some experts and some lecturers. But I just was wondering, like in in over the course of your career, have you kind of identified some best practices for how teachers could kind of approach that that content side of life?
0: Yeah. Well, I think you know the sheltered literature that I mentioned does a very good job of sort of saying what. What methods can teachers use? Um, I'm doing a project right now in North Africa with um, content professors in the Algerian university context. So we've been doing this for the past three years. Um, with Teachers College. They hired me on because of my content-based background to work on this project with them. And um, we've been trying to sort of identify these types of best practices like you're you're mentioning. Um, my colleagues and I at UCLA, way back in the late 1990s, decided that we weren't happy with the kinds of textbooks that we were using with our students that these were matriculated students at the University of California, Los Angeles. Um, So um, we decided that we would look at um, teachers who had been identified as winning the best teaching award at UCLA, and we knocked on lots of doors across the content areas, um, asking professors, can we come into your classroom, into your lecture, and can we do... Can we videotape your lecture? Can you identify for us what you think is one of your best lectures? And also, can we get access to the readings that are associated with those or any other materials that you're willing to share, like the quizzes or the um, paper assignments that you've given to your students? And we put together a two volume um, ESL text written at a very high level for high proficiency level students called Insights. and um, I was I, I think that that those two volumes went a long way towards sort of um, helping us to figure out what the best practices were. And uh, when I was working with this Algerian project, the teachers asked, "You know what what can we see that would show us what we could do with our content lectures?" Um, and I said, "I'm happy to share these materials, the books no longer." Being published, so I shared with them a couple of chapters, and they said, "This is exactly what we want. You know, this is what we need. This is really very helpful." And they proceeded to then write new chapters to go along with this textbook um, based on the content that was being taught at the Algerian university. Um, So we had cohorts of five to six students, and in in each one of those groups, those subgroups of our of our professors that we were working with, there were usually two content professors and three or four applied linguistics people. And they were all then coordinating, like we did in the freshman summer program, to create materials that would integrate language and content. So it's called the ICLHE Project, Integrated Content and Language in Higher Education Project that's um, co-sponsored by Teachers College, Columbia University, the uh, Algerian Ministry of Higher Education, right. the U.S. Embassy in um, Algiers. It's a very exciting project.
2: I so. was. I just found a copy of that book that you just mentioned. Insights: A Content-Based Approach to Academic Preparation. It's probably one of the first textbooks that I've actually. 1997.
0: 1997.
2: Yeah, and That's uh, it. I. Yeah. I didn't know. Actually, I collect. I collect old books, and books <laughs> that I usually. You know, out of print. This one doesn't seem to have it. They don't have it in print anymore. But, like, I don't know why. Because you said something interesting, Don. I said you were not happy with the textbooks that you were using. And I feel like a lot of language teachers today are also not very happy with the textbooks they're using. So now a lot of people are just creating um, their own material materials yeah in my well, there, question... there are issues of
0: authenticity for example you know yes. these were real university lecturers who kindly led us into their classroom with huge vhs uh video cameras <laughs> at the time and um you know yeah it was one of the very first books that um that came out using actual authentic materials, awesome. and we you had to, know, of course, get permission from all these professors. Yeah. Use their lectures. Um, yeah,
2: that's amazing because it reminds valuable. me. Yeah. yeah, it reminds me of the co-build project with Jane that's Willis right. and Dave Willis, does, yeah. where they also released in the first textbook that used corpora, that used authentic audio, authentic material. Mm-hmm. My question to you is very simple: It's the same question that I asked Jane Willis when she came on the show? Why didn't this book? do well like why wasn't it like oh, a the hit book did well did well did
0: did well from the book did well from 1997 until about 2010 2011 really? yeah I' uh, never heard of this
2: book before yeah ne- no it did very well but because no. it
0: was written to an audience of students that were at a very very high level right. of proficiency it wasn't used in intensive English programs because not the even EAP
2: programs not
0: usually. Wow. We, we tried mm-hmm. to introduce it there, but, you know, the IEP curriculum is very often divided into listening, reading, writing, and speaking. And right. they use, you know, these series of books. And so it was used more in, um, in university matriculated level programs, but also wow. abroad. Um, mm. we had a lot of sales abroad, um, I think e f Language School used it as a required text. Um, and we did we did quite well with it, actually. Um,
2: I'm finding some very expensive copies here on eBay <laughs>
0: so. Yeah. Well, I have a couple extra copies. I guess I should put them on eBay too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I think I found one on Amazon, $15, but it cannot be shipped to Canada. So there's a there's a, <laughs> there's a flaw. In that's $1,000. <laughs> <In> that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. The book is cheap, the shipping. That's right. Yeah, Content-based approach
2: yeah. to that's Probably what I'm also hearing, Donna, um, especially what you're saying about the materials creation the approach talking to subject matter experts. What I'm hearing is a lot of the what I what what Mike Long calls the strong task based language teaching approach, where you actually talk to the experts. You look at the kind of discourse that those people have to um, adopt in order to belong to that very specific discourse community. Are there any sort of maybe not that's not the right word, but are there any sort of Overlapping or any sort of similarities between how we approach task based language teaching and the creation of materials for task based language teaching and content based instruction?
0: There's a wonderful chapter that David Noonan wrote oh. um, in the second edition of the content based classroom that's called Content, Tasks, and Projects. Oh. And that grew out of actually a, a small conference uh, that David and I um, attended in Monterey, where he was asked to talk about task-based instruction. And I was asked to talk about content-based instruction. And, you know, we kept sort of saying, well, as David said yesterday, or as Donna said this morning, um, and we we started talking about the similarities, you know, it's really, it's it's where is the point of departure? Is the point of departure the content? Or is right. the point of departure the task? Other than that, we're really talking about very complementary approaches. It's not mm. this one is better than that one, but which one of these is more appropriate in the setting that, you know, that we're working with. Um, and we're, you know, sort of always thinking about you can't you can't have a content-based curriculum without tasks that go along with it. And yeah. similarly, you can't have a task-based curriculum without content. Yeah. So that's, that's basically this idea of where's the point of departure.
3: Or the authenticity as well, right? Like you yeah.
1: both.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Appropriateness is a good word. I think I like that word as well. Cause as Mike said, our audience and, and teachers listening, a lot of them, you know, have their own business or are creating their own curriculum or, are working for themselves and choosing texts and choosing content is always a point of, of, it's, it's an important point of how do we, you know, teaching at the point of need, how does that correlate with choosing content yeah. and what what is the goal of, of the learner and the students? In that study that you mentioned, I think you said psychology and you were talking about Freud. Was it that those students would then go on to study psychology specifically? Was that the, the basis of choosing that? Or, and the only reason I ask is because of our audience and usually they are yeah. want to choose the right content for what the goal yeah. of, the, of the learner
0: has. In- In that particular project, the FSP, Freshman Summer Program, um, no, these were entering first year, you know, undergraduate students. They weren't necessarily wanting to be psychology majors. They were given a choice of four or five content courses that they could enroll in. And when they were enrolled in that content course, then they automatically were enrolled in the, the language course that was connected to that um yeah nice. so they weren't necessarily going on to study psychology but they just thought that sounded probably easier than the other class but they gave they got <laughs> a choice oh, it sounds like i think they really did have important. a they did yeah. have a choice yeah 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 Good. but very different like the project that we're doing right now in algeria the students who are going into those are actually majors in that discipline so wow. and the algerian government has just made a decision to this is this is a landmark decision to switch from the medium of French at the university to the medium of English for oh, wow. uh, content instruction. So there's going to be a huge need for training language instructors and content instructors across all of the, the universities there.
1: If you're listening, there's a niche for you.
0: Yeah yeah there <laughs> is.
2: <laughs> Algeria huh? I have one. Fascinating country too. Yeah, I'm I'm curious. I actually wrote it down because I'm like, I want to be part of this now. (laughs) I wanna, I wanna, I wanna go to Algeria. Um I'll definitely I'll definitely send you a message later. (laughs) We can talk about (laughs) that. Um but I think I before we we talk about pronunciation, which is I want to talk about your your more more most recent um article. But I wanna talk I wanna wrap up the the content-based um conversation here. To ask you a more of a, more of a, a reflective question, because I know you've been working with, with content-based instruction for pretty much your, your entire career. How have you seen content-based instruction evolve over the years? And what impact do you think it's had or has it had on language education overall? And more importantly, now... After COVID, things have changed. The world has turned upside down. Where do you see the future of content-based instruction and language education in general heading? What do you What do you What I'm not asking you to predict, but based on your extensive experience, Donna, what do you see? What the future has in store for for CBI?
0: Well, we haven't even mentioned the acronym EMI. English I was about to talk about that because
2: yeah. you were talking about Algeria. I was like, mm, I mean, that's
0: I'm, EMI. I'm a higher education person, so I can talk more about how it's impacted higher education than I can about how it's in, impacted the schools. Oh, um, obviously it's had, it plays a large role in the schools as well. But if you look around the world today and you see so many universities have opted to either do certain programs within the university all through the medium of English, or the entire university has transferred over to doing English, just like what's happening in Algeria right now, where they're talking about embracing EMI. Um, I've done a lot of work in Japan um, with different universities there. They were actually one of the very, very first countries Um, outside of the European Union to embrace EMI, and Mm -hmm. Sophia University, for example, was probably the very first to sort of do extensive work with EMI. So that, I think, has transformed the world, really, if you realize that, oh, I can go to um, Thailand And I can be a graduate student there at the Thai University and I won't need to learn Thai because all of the classes that I'm going to be taking will be in English. And the last time I taught a class in Japan, for example, I do a lot of work with Kanda University there um, and Soka University as well. Um, I sort of expected, oh, I'm going to be teaching I teach a short course on contest instruction to the students at the Japanese university. I'm going to be working with students from Japan. No, I have students from, I actually had a Canadian, I had a a Brit, I had an American, and I had a student from New Zealand, along with a student from France and a student from um, Malaysia all in my classes in the Japanese university. I think I maybe had one student from Japan in one of the courses that I taught, but they're from all over the world. So that's really revolutionized education worldwide, I think. And there's a huge need for, um, for working with these teachers who are delivering their courses through English because these are content teachers who don't necessarily have Uh, advanced level of proficiency in English. So there are issues of their proficiency in English, there are issues Mm -hmm. of the students' proficiency in English. When you've got a mix of students from different countries, this is one of the problems that Japanese universities encountered. They had students from Sweden along with students from Japan, well, the students from Sweden probably spoke English better than I do, but the students from Japan were relatively limited in their English Mm -hmm. proficiency, and the content teachers were having a lot of trouble just managing the different levels of proficiency within their content classroom.
2: Yeah, when you were talking about, the, I actually just read here that Algeria is actually switching to English. They're moving away from from French and switching all their... Education to English. It's which huge, is fascinating. Yeah, it's a big yeah. move, bold move too. If you ask me. Yeah. Um. Well, I wanna I wanna switch gears and talk a little bit about pronunciation because I know you have you actually mentioned this to me, and I went out to look for the article. Of course, I couldn't have access to the article, so I had to ask someone to share the article with me. But you have recently published one at the ITAFEL's Pronunciation uh, Special Interest Group Journal um, called "Speak Out," and I actually like the title of your article because it reminds me of an old pronunciation textbook, ship or sheep. And you wrote exactly. Is that is that the inspiration for the article? Oh,
0: absolutely. Minimal (laughs) pair.
2: Minimal pair.
0: This is my audiolingual background coming out. (laughs) But the the point that I'm making in that article is that the assessment of the diagnostic assessment of pronunciation hasn't moved beyond that. In ways that it should be moving so, so that let's was talk
2: about that because the article is tired it's titled beyond slip versus sleep diagnosing beyond pronunciation slip versus sleep. Yeah. yeah so i think i'm curious to hear how we can actually diagnose pronunciation skills well I mean,
0: the article is not approach. really um talking about how we can do that so much as critiquing the current practices. Um, Let's criticize
2: it then first. Well, what is the yes. problem with minimal pairs? Which is seems to be very minimal pairs are perhaps the most pervasive way of teaching pronunciation. Absolutely, I've seen. it's and all teachers, over social media. Teachers
0: it's, love them, and students actually, if you do them in small doses, students love it too. They ask you, "Can we do that one again? Say it again? Can we try it again?" Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying we should get, we should dump minimal pairs by any means. It's just, if that's the be all and end all of diagnostic assessment, then we have a problem. So I think it's, it's important to do that. What I did in the article is I took a look at different um, ESL pronunciation texts for students. And chapter one is always a chapter that's devoted to diagnostic assessment. And I said, I looked at these, you know, it wasn't a highly scientific study, it was basically Mm -hmm. me flipping the pages of these texts and saying, okay, this one looks like it's totally rooted in audio lingual, you know, uh, sleep versus sleep type of issues and uh, diagnostic passages like the Prater and Robinette um, when a student from another country comes to study in the United States. um, You know, those were so painful, those memories of having to, you know, have the students record these passages and then you marked them all up and you gave them back to the students and they looked at it and they thought, I'm hopeless. I mean, every 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 sentence has about 25 errors in it. What am I going to do with my pronunciation? So it was a bad message to the students. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to see if any of these textbooks had sort of more forward-thinking practices that were more in alignment with communicative language teaching principles or more modern language teaching principles. And I highlight one of the texts. It's actually not all that recent. I think it's 2004 publication date by Sue Miller. Um, and um, I talk about what she does that's a little bit different and a little bit more forward-thinking. Um, and one of the primary things there is that she's using um, more free speech samples. She's giving students an element of choice. So here are two diagnostic passages. Record the one that you feel most comfortable with rather than here's this just one and that's you have to record that one. Um, She had uh, some wordless cartoons and then the students were asked, talk about how you think this story evolves, you know, after the last panel of the cartoon, create a story of your own that continues in the same vein. So that, that's what I was talking about in that article.
2: Yeah. And it's probably, I don't know if this is the right thing for me to say, but I will say it anyway. I think it's a challenge for a lot of teachers to motivate students to want to work on their pronunciation, primarily because of what you said. They're they're being assessed on their pronunciation. They're being marked on their pronunciation. So my question for you, apart from that, is what can teachers perhaps do, or what do you find most effective for maybe maintaining students' engagement, students' desire to actually want to work on their pronunciation over the long-term? Are there any ideas that you would recommend to teachers in that, in that regard?
0: I mean, this sounds like a very simplistic answer, but make pronunciation teaching more fun, mm-hmm. um, more interactive. Um, there's a whole strand of pronunciation teaching that's called haptic pronunciation I was teaching about to where they're talking a lot about the importance of movement, body, body movement, gesture, um even just you know, being becoming more aware of of features of, you know, the the vocal tract. and facial you know so basically issues. learning more
2: about the muscles and yeah. things like that is that Learn what the haptic? About the mus- pronunciation, yeah. yeah yeah
0: well that's some of the stuff that they do um i think that's that's really important um getting students involved in doing the kinds of things that communicative language teaching does so well like role play but mm-hmm. role play is a very exciting opportunity for for doing pronunciation practice so you know those kinds of things i think um we're looking forward to the revision of the teaching pronunciation chapter in the Apple book right. because we've convinced Janet Goodwin, who wrote the chapter in the fourth edition, to contribute to the fifth edition. And I just had a long conversation with her the other day about what she's doing there. There's a lot of work with um, uh, methods like um, echoing mm. and uh, shadowing, yes. um, where this. And I've seen some amazing. Um, transformations of students that you could barely understand. Um, A lot of teachers bringing in things like TED Talks. And take two minutes of a TED Talk and just shadow the speaker, not just vocally, but also all of the gestures and all of the body language and all of that. And you can see huge changes in the students' pronunciation.
2: So what I'm what I'm hearing is that this whole haptic pronunciation, um, these practitioners of haptic pronunciation there, it's more of about it's more it's the physicality, it's the muscles, it's the embodiment of pronunciation. Mm-hmm. So pronunciation is not just happening literally and metaphorically at the tip of your tongue.
1: Yeah,
2: it's right. happening everywhere.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, OK. Yeah.
0: So there, there are lots of newer techniques. Um you know, a lot of people use clips from from movies or clips from television shows mm-hmm. to motivate their students. I think bringing in authentic materials to the pronunciation classroom, because so much of that, the previous pronunciation materials that we had in textbooks were all, you know, so artificial and so yeah. sort of concocted. Um, that, that's sort of the slip versus sleep issue that, right. you know, how often, how important is it to learn, you know don't sleep on the floor, don't slip on the floor. Um, Is that really going to serve you well, you know, when you speak the language to real people? Probably not all that important.
2: I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Richard Caldwell.
0: A little bit, yeah.
2: But Richard talked a lot about what he called the blur gap, how certain words, specifically words in a minimal pair, they might sound like slip or sleep, but when they are inserted within a sentence, within a context, those words change their shape. So sleep doesn't yeah. always sound like sleep and slip sleep. doesn't always right. sound like slip, right?
0: I just watched a, a clip of uh, Scottish speakers the other day and you know, <laughs> the vowels there, oh my God, they don't sound anything <laughs> like my vowels, you know.
2: <laughs> Sounds like a different language sometimes. Yeah. I remember watching yeah. a video of two, I think it was a good friend of mine who showed me that video two Scottish farmers having a conversation and they just couldn't understand each other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was phenomenal. So. Which, which brings me to the point, because you were talking about authentic material, authentic material. A lot, of, a lot of teachers, they feel insecure about not only their accent, but also in their ability to effectively teach pronunciation. And I remember talking to a few of them, and one of the reasons for this is because a lot of teachers think that they're not the ideal model for their students, especially in an EFL context. And mm-hmm. I think you're also familiar with the work of, I never know how to pronounce his name correctly, but I'm going to try. Peter Medjic, the Hungarian, yeah. Hungarian guy who wrote the non-native teacher. And I remember mm-hmm. him saying that non-native speaker teachers can also be good language models for, for language learners. I'm, I, I'm, I would like to hear your take on that. Like what kind of advice would you give to a teacher who is not a native speaker of English, but still wants to work with pronunciation in the classroom with their students.
0: Well, I, I did a webinar for a TESOL's top interest section, which is teachers of pronunciation and it's called teaching pronunciation. It doesn't take a native speaker. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I very much convinced that the probably best and most appropriate teacher of pronunciation for a given group of L1 speakers is not necessarily a native speaker, but probably the, um, the speaker of the student's own L1 who has successfully acquired a high degree of intelligibility in the second language. Um, and what I say to those teachers is, you know, the goal today is not in any shape or form to become a native speaker in terms of your pronunciation, but rather to become an intelligible speaker of the target language. If it's English, then intelligible. And the interlocutor that you're most likely to be using English with is probably not a native speaker, but rather when we're thinking about international trade and all of this, somebody that speaks a different language than you do where English is the common language that you're going to be able to use to communicate with each other and to sell your product and to hype your product and to, you know, make some money. Um, So I think that um, giving that message to these teachers and when I, when I do talk to teachers um, at conferences and stuff, when I make that point, we do a pre-convention Institute at TESOL on teaching pronunciation every year. um, And the large larger portion of the teachers who attend that pre-convention institute are non-native speakers they're always very relieved to kind of hear this message and maybe one of the one of the things that is most convincing is to say to these teachers you've conquered so many issues in speaking english intelligibly you learned how to produce th for example if this is you know not really all that important but let's say you learned how to do th now you can teach your students how you overcame this issue yourself i can't do that i don't have that experience i never had to overcome these hurdles of how to acquire you know english intelligible highly intelligible pronunciation you did so you're a much better teacher of this for your students than i am
2: yeah it's a good point it's a good message i think i think a lot of teachers will We'll appreciate that. They will appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I have a few, maybe one or two more questions that I would like to ask you, Donna, so we can, uh, we can wrap up this episode. And they're more, one is more of a personal reflection. I really like guests to reflect on their career. And the second one is more about the future of language education. But I know that you have worn many different hats, teacher, teacher, trainer, materials developer, author, supervisor, evaluator. Um Connoisseur of Algerian um, culture, apparently now. and this might be a very difficult um, question for you to give an answer to. But looking back at your career, what are you most proud of?
0: It's a really tough question. Um, i'm I'm very proud of, you know the the co-edited and co-authored. Books that I've put out on the market, but I want to give full credit to my co-editors and co-authors because they're—I I almost never do things by myself. I'm a collaborator at heart. Um, I believe that you know there's so much strength in collaboration. So I'm very proud of those, and I'm also probably most proud of the work that I've done internationally which we haven't really talked about at all, but um, I've done a lot of work, um, especially with uh, U.S. Department of State, which has a program called English Language Specialist. And I've done over 40 different assignments as an English Language Specialist in not 40 countries, but probably close to 30 countries um, where I've worked with teachers These aren't programs for students. In my case, it's always been working with teachers, teachers in Tunisia, teachers in Libya, teachers in South Africa, teachers in Chile, Um, and Um, I'm always given an assignment. It might be, you know, a whole short course on teaching pronunciation, or it might be about content-based instruction, or it might be general methodology. But I feel really good about what I've done there and the connections that I've been able to make with teachers around the world. I can travel to almost any country and there's somebody there that I know because they were a participant in one of my workshops. And I I love the work that I've done there. And it's been transformational for me, obviously, because it's given me that kind of um, authenticity where I can talk about what are the issues in teaching English around the world? Well, you know, the first thing that usually happens to me is, well, you don't really understand our context because our context is different. Well, I understand the context in about 40 different countries. And mm-hmm. I, the lesson I've taken from that is that the context is really not all that different depending on the country where we are. It's There are far more similarities than there are differences.
2: You kind of open up the... A conversation for another question related to what you said. Well, first of all, I know. I was even thinking, I was like, this would have been a three-hour podcast easily because there's so much we still want to talk. So we're probably going to have to have you back to talk more about other things related to your career. And maybe when the Apple book is out, we can invite you back so you oh, can talk more great. about that. But you said that the, the context doesn't really matter. It's not really... Everyone is. Oh, and every teacher says, oh, but you don't understand the context of, of language teaching here and this and that. My question to you is, what is the biggest impediment to successful or effective language teaching and, of course, as a result, language learning? What do, what do you see as the number one obstacle or impediment for that based on your yeah. vast experience?
0: I think that's why I'm a methodologist. And it's because, you know, an untrained teacher really doesn't have any idea what they're doing in the classroom. And I can speak from personal experience. When I went to Germany, as I mentioned at the outset of this interview, I was not really a well-trained English language teacher. And I knew nothing about teaching German to native speakers. And I failed miserably at it. Had I perhaps been trained to do that, you know, I would have been more successful. So I The um, Western China experience that I mentioned real briefly, Mm -hmm. where we took the undergraduate um, political science majors to Western China, and I had a two-day brief, you know, training period before they got there. Um, It was fascinating for me to see how they would just sort of fall apart in front of the groups of students because they didn't have the training. And then at the end, they'd say to me, Donna, Donna, give me a an idea what can I do you know I just did this lesson on body parts and I I totally lost it in the middle of the class because this, I didn't know where to go next so I I think training
1: is know? the is the follow-up to that then that a, a trained teacher who does know what they're doing can go to any context or almost any context with the right method is the follow is that the follow-up so
0: I think so I think you know. Obviously, there's still more that we have to learn on the job, and I I don't want to say you know there's there's no differences from setting to setting. Clearly, there are a lot of cultural issues that we need to be aware of. There's all sorts of stuff that needs to to be learned on the job. But if if you already are trained and you're already experienced and you can go to a new setting, and the likelihood of your succeeding is far far greater than that of just tossing the the backpacking you know, teacher, the backpacking individual who wants to stop it. And, and we all started there. We all started there. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's the best way to start. And it's, it's the way that, you know, that got us all into the profession to begin with. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. My, my last question is related to the future as well. Future of language education of language teaching and I, I guess you know what's happening. and the revolution is happening in your backyard there with open AI and artificial intelligence and everything. what what do you It's hard for you to predict, but I'm asking you with with your background and your vast experience, what do you think it's going to happen? how do you think that as a as an industry, as as a field, do you feel like we can still we can use we can leverage the power of artificial intelligence in language teaching is it a threat should people be concerned the question that i a lot of teachers always ask me is like leo ai is going to take our jobs i said i don't think it will mm-hmm. because the same teacher back in the day when we had a blackboard said the blackboard is going to take over our jobs what do you have to say on that what are your thoughts on artificial intelligence the future of language education donna i'm
0: um- Absolutely no specialist in this at all. But I have been, you know, sort of reading, mm-hmm. especially on LinkedIn, I think the posts on LinkedIn have been really, really great. Because so many people who really know a lot about artificial intelligence are writing about it, as it pertains to language teaching. And so every morning that I open that up, and I, I give myself the task of at least reading one or two of the posts that people have written. And I think, um, I tend toward those ones that say, it's it's a tool, like any mm-hmm. tool. We managed to, you know, figure out what to do with Zoom. It didn't take over our jobs. It just made our jobs initially a little bit more complicated, but then in the end, kind of interesting to see. Yeah. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I was asked by USC to do um, some classes remotely, and I thought, oh... I taught one class, one physical class, and one or two remote classes, and I created the curriculum for these remote teacher training classes, right. and I thought, I'm never going to like doing the remote stuff as much as I like doing the physical stuff, but in the end, I realized I have a closer relationship with my students who are students in the remote classroom. In the, in the it wasn't Zoom at the time, it was, I think, some version of Adobe something or other that we were using, but... Um, you know, we we are very as language teachers, we're very flexible. We learn how to do these things. I've gone through I don't know how many um, Canvas and Moodle and Blackboard and all of these different you know course management right. systems that we had to figure out how to use. And I I don't think I could teach a course without one today. Yeah, that's I, I think true. they're so valuable to be able to have this, you know, wonderful compendium of materials and resources and links that the students can, and and you come closer to the students that way because you can put up, you know, journaling assignments and all of that. And I think the same thing is going to hold true of AI, but obviously it's a skill that needs to be learned. We need to learn how to direct it to do the things. I've seen some pretty interesting presentations at the recent CTSOL con- State Conference that I attended, where teachers were showing us how they'd created lesson plans using AI and how it had simplified their lives. So I do believe there's that, there's that, but it needs to all be taken with a grain of salt sand or salt or whatever it is we do. Um, and figure out you know how to use it effectively and how to not let it be a threat in our lives and not let it be a negative influence
2: so absolutely absolutely
1: do you see last one from me just do you see on the future it's it's already kind of part of the present but more countries like tunisia in in the context of emi do you see that becoming more prevalent as we move forward?
0: I think yes, but there's also a backlash that you're, I'm sure, aware of where you have countries like Sweden saying, you know, we've essentially done away with Swedish as a language of academic interaction and we need to bring it back. So I think those lessons from these countries that have been doing it for a longer period of time need to be translated to the people who have just discovered, wow, this is, you know, amazing. We're going to do away with, you know, French altogether and the Algerian university and embrace English. Well, you know, let's look at let's look at the literature and let's look at what what the lessons learned so far have been.
3: That's the pendulum; it's swinging.
0: It's the pendulum, yeah. <laughs> the
3: pendulum is Algeria, up. sorry, I
1: <laughs> Not Tunisia, Algeria.
0: Yes. Uh, well, Tunisia, too. We had a project also in Tunisia, oh. but it was not an English medium instruction one so much it as it was working with teaching teachers, training teachers of young learners, which was also a fascinating project.
2: I feel that if you were to sh- just name a country, I think Donna would say, oh, yeah, but we also work there. You got it wrong, but we've we've been doing some work there, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, Donna, thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, for listening.
0: Thank you. This was totally delightful. You guys really appreciated getting to know all three of you. And yeah. your questions were amazing. And thank you for thinking of me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. No, you know, I think it's, uh, it's we definitely, like I said, Mike brought it up. And I was like, yeah, let's talk. And uh, eventually looking into it, I love that you sent me that menu. Um, there was so much in there. I was like, oh, wow. There's so, and I honestly had material here for us to talk for at least three hours, but we all need a break. I have. I yeah. have a bad back, and if I sit for too long, <laughs> my back starts hurting. It starts firing up. Mike may up. need
0: to take a little bit of a nap or something yeah, <laughs> I, I'm just continue out, getting I'm over.
3: I'm almost out of my feet here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But, but totally captivated,
2: right? Yeah, yeah. I'm just <laughs> leaning up
3: against the bookshelf. Oh, there we go. That works. Yeah, read up against the molding here. Yeah. But, yeah.
2: And, uh, but we, we're definitely interested in uh, having you talk more about content-based instruction. I feel that for some reason, a lot of this younger generation of teachers They don't know much, but because there is a lot of uh, there's a trend now where teachers are becoming more autonomous, they're becoming freelancers, they're building their own courses, they're attracting their own audience. So they have their own niche. And I feel like the people that, that listen to the podcast, a lot of them are researchers, a lot of them are practitioners, but I feel like not many people talk about CBI and course creation and things like that. So we would love to have you do that webinar on CBI. Um, For us, I I was gonna say better in January, Donna, as the year is coming to an end, and I know December is rushed for everyone, so I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that to you or to us. I'm not
0: gonna be available. I would say no no if you asked me December.
2: No, I think we should aim for (laughs) January, (laughs) February. I (laughs) think that would be January,
0: February. Yeah, would be easier.
2: New year, new year. We. I want this year to be over. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, happy Thanksgiving. I know it's coming up. Yeah, Yeah, thank you. Thank you. you. Yeah. Yeah so okay. um and thank we'll you very much again. donna yeah yeah we'll do okay. we have to have you back when the book is out when the podcast oh, is absolutely. out, probably in january we'll have you back to talk more about the writing process maybe we can even go through um more of your other projects because there's definitely enough here for a, a three-hour podcast episode okay.
0: okay well thanks again and thank you very much. Uh, we'll be talking in the future You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your
1: English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching,
2: professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.